Well, I'll go ahead and get started. This is going to be the final week of the class that I've been teaching, and uh, this afternoon I'm going to talk about faith and doubt. And just to be clear, what I have in mind when I talk about faith and doubt are intellectual and emotional questions that people have uh, as they seek to follow Jesus. So there are going to be times uh, when we or people we know are going to wrestle with intellectual questions or emotional issues that people are having uh, trouble reconciling with their faith. So what do we do when we're confronted with those challenges? So this afternoon, um, I want to present the info a little differently than what I've done in previous weeks. So at the start, I'll just lay a general foundation for understanding doubt and questions of the faith. Uh, But then I want to look at some specific cultural examples of how do you see this um, in culture, and and then we'll talk about those as just representative examples of reasons that people walk away from the faith. So let's start with the foundation, and I want to tell just a brief story. A few months ago, I had a meeting. I met with an old friend. And this was somebody who grew up in the church, uh, grew up in the faith. And as we talked, he revealed that he no longer believed in the faith of his youth. Um, He had deconstructed his faith. And, uh, you know, as I tell the story, I'm not speaking from a place of superiority. uh, But as we talked, it really, the conversation revealed two distinct paths. I was reminded of Psalms and Proverbs talks about the paths of the righteous and the paths of the wicked, or the path of wisdom and the path of foolishness. And so here was the situation where both of us had very similar backgrounds, but we had chosen two completely different paths. And one of the things that stood out to me from that conversation were his reasons for walking away from God. Uh, It was clear to me that his reasons for deconstructing his faith were not primarily intellectual, they were emotional concerns. And I think that's true for many doubts and crises of faith that people have. So it saddens me that people feel like uh, they can't talk about those things with people in the church. Um, So, you know, if people have doubts, that's okay, especially if those doubts are intellectual reconciling Christianity with science, for example, um, I would be one of the last people to advocate for an anti-intellectual understanding of your faith. So faith is not opposed to having doubt. Faith is not opposed to having questions. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's unbelief. And so in the Gospel of Mark, there's a man who cries out to Jesus, and he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So it's okay to express your doubts, but that's not a good place to stay. Um, Jesus didn't encourage him to stay with his unbelief. So go to God with your doubts, go to others in community, and then learn to doubt your doubts, because your doubts are not infallible. Uh, Doubt, as I said, is not a place that you should stay. It's not a virtue. You can't stay in a perpetual state of flux or uncertainty. 
eventually you have to land on something firm. So to use an analogy, uh, doubt is like concrete that needs to harden. So it, when I first joined the Air Force, I was what they call a dirt boy, and I worked with big heavy construction equipment and we poured big slabs of concrete. That's um, overseas in UAE. And concrete has a curing time, and that, that's its hardening time. And so concrete will harden in about 24 to 48 hours after you pour it, and even though it looks finished, it's still curing. And they actually say you have to wait about 28 days after pouring it before you allow traffic on it. Uh, because if you start driving on it before then, it's going to cause it to crack. Um, it's not strong enough yet to handle the weight. And so my point is, if you build on a foundation that's always curing but never cured, you're building a house of cards. If you're always doubting, but you're never arriving at any conclusions, so if you're always arriving but never arrived, you're living in an unlivable reality. And the thing is, that phrase, always arriving but never arrived, it can sound somewhat humble, uh, but I think it's a false humility because I think it's really a, a clever and a convenient way of having to deal with the truth. So, of course, there are limits to our knowledge. There's so much that we don't know, especially about God. Uh, but that doesn't mean we can't have adequate knowledge about who God is and what God is like. God has told us what he's like. He's revealed himself to us through his word. So Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. <clears throat> Similarly, 1 Corinthians 13 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So we can't know God exhaustively. There's things about God that are hidden but we can know him adequately and accurately through what he's revealed. And the way we primarily come to that knowledge is through his word. So let's return to my friend who I said deconstructed his faith. Those, those aren't his words, uh, but that's in fact what he did. So let me define this phenomenon uh, in evangelical circles known as deconstruction. So some caveats first. Um, the big news flash is that this phenomenon is not new, uh, though the term itself may be. 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. So I don't mean to suggest that John is saying that those who went out from them, as in walked away from them, deconstructed, as we might understand, uh, but in the very least, John is writing about people who walked away from the faith. Now, whether or not that means those who walk away from the faith ever truly were part of the faith is something that theologians will debate, but I'm not going to get into that this afternoon. So let me define deconstruction. What is it? Well, in a nutshell, deconstruction is the process of dismantling, dissecting, or revising 
the faith or traditional doctrines. So uh, sometimes people who deconstruct will label themselves as an ex-evangelical, or they will speak about their deconversion. They had a conversion experience, then they had this deconversion experience. Uh, so somebody who's deconstructing their faith might sound might say something like this. They would say, you know, our human doctrines are attempts at containing the uncontainable, incomprehensible nature of God. And so we have to do away with doctrinal formations as traditionally understood because they're restrictive to the true nature of God's bigness. And... Um, To be honest, I I don't like the term itself, deconstruction, uh, but whatever reason, that's the term that uh, contemporary evangelicals have chosen to use to describe doubt and disillusionment with Christianity. Uh, Personally, I I find the term somewhat annoying uh, because it it sounds complicated and cool and radical and avant-garde, but it's actually quite simple and, I think, stupid. Um, it's kind of like modern art. You know, somebody puts a crucifix in a jar of urine and they say, oh, wow, he did something radical that nobody's ever thought of before. No, he's just being profane. That's not art. It's masquerading as art, but it's childish. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying if you have doubts, you're stupid. Uh, That's not what I'm saying. But I'm pushing back on this notion that deconstruction... um, is something radical and trendy. Uh, People have had doubts for thousands of years. Now granted, those doubts can express themselves in new forms, and they can be influenced by new forms of thought, but the bottom line is that people have always had doubts about the Christian faith. Now one of the underlying themes throughout deconstruction is this focus on ambiguity. And so part of this stems is new, and it stems from a new uh, philosophical thought known as deconstructionism, and that has to do with language and objective truth or objective meaning. So the idea in deconstructionism is that a text, a book, uh, doesn't have objective meaning or objective truth. And so this is kind of what we would typically associate with what's called postmodernism. So postmodernism is largely influenced by the school of thought known as deconstructionism. And it's obvious how that's influenced um, how people interpret the Bible, hermeneutics. Does the text have meaning? Or can it mean whatever I want it to mean? Or can the meaning change when I read it through a different lens, say through the lens of my experience? And so this deconstructionist approach of looking at the Bible um, will look at the Bible, and instead of arriving at concrete, solid answers, it wants to emphasize ambiguities or unresolvable tensions in the text. And so basically they say there's a whole lot of gray that we just don't know. And so that's the idea that's very popular today. There's just so much that we don't know. And to say that we know with any degree of certainty is prideful and arrogant. Uh, But again, 
to say that we don't know is usually only applied to things like ethics or morality or theology, not when it comes to the science, say, of COVID data. Well, people can have objective knowledge there. People are not afraid to tell you that. But when it comes to interpreting the Bible, well, they would say, oh, we, we just don't know. We don't have enough knowledge. We throw our hands up in the air. So is that openness to ambiguity an expression of humility? Is it a good thing? Well, as, as I mentioned, I think it's a false humility. Um, I think it's problematic because ultimately ambiguity uh, suggests that we can't know. And I would say that's, that's very different than what theologians would call the incomprehensibility of God. And the incomprehensibility of God is the idea that there is not exhaustive knowledge of God. So that doesn't mean there's no knowledge of God, and it doesn't mean that doctrines are unimportant or meaningless. Uh, So instead, where our culture wants to emphasize ambiguity, this idea that we can't know, Traditional Christian theology and the the incomprehensibility of God would leave room for mystery. So I would say ambiguity is different than mystery. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, Deuteronomy 29.29 said, The secret things belong to the Lord. Or 1 Corinthians 13 says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So mystery acknowledges with Paul in Romans 11, where he says, Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. So mystery is different than throwing your hands up in the air saying, We just can't know. Uh, Mystery is different than our attempts at um, seeking understanding and saying that's futile. Mystery acknowledges that God has indeed revealed himself, and we can know some things about him. But again, uh, we can't know God exhaustively, so that's mystery, but we can know him adequately and accurately through his word. So deconstructionists may like to say that human knowledge, especially human doctrine, limits God. It puts God in a box. Uh, But our knowledge of God doesn't limit God because knowledge of God comes from God. And our knowledge of God is in and through God. So it doesn't limit him in any way. Or sometimes people will say silly things like, uh, we need Christianity without doctrine. We need to get rid of things like systematic theology. But the problem is Christianity without doctrine, teaching, doesn't exist. Uh, Because the belief that Christianity shouldn't have doctrine is a doctrine. It's a belief. So, of course, when it comes to our beliefs, our doctrines, the ultimate authority is the Bible. So we must always seek to bring our doctrines under the authority of God's word. And that brings me back to that analogy of concrete. We need firm doctrinal convictions, 
because you can't build on a foundation that's always in flux. So as I said, I was just gonna do a brief kind of foundation for faith and doubt. So I hope that gives you just a brief introduction to the concept of deconstruction, some of its central ideas, and some of the problems with it. So what I wanna do with the time left is just to look at some examples from culture about deconstruction, common themes we see within deconstruction, and ways that we see culture is shaping us. How do we receive these messages and these ideas? Uh, before I do, let me just um, throw up some books uh, on apologetics, if you're interested. Um, two books up there, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis is kind of a classic work on apologetics, and Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, I've mentioned a couple times throughout this class, really is a modern version of mere Christianity. Um, they're really good. And then the two middle books there by Oz Guinness and Dallas Willard, um, I really like those books um, because they're different than other works on apologetics um, in that they really speak about the spirit of doing apologetics not just the arguments, um, but they're talking about how should apologetics be done. Um, and what I like about them is both Willard and Os Guinness are men who have really lived their apologetic philosophy long before they wrote about it. So Os Guinness in particular, I think at some point in that book, he says it's the fruit of 50 years of thinking about apologetics before he wrote about it. So there's a lot of wisdom there. Um, so there you go. There's, there's some books if you're interested in reading further. So let, let's jump into some cultural examples of deconstruction. And I want to begin with the premise uh, that we're always being spiritually formed and sometimes spiritually malformed. So culture is shaping us. And it shapes us through the stories that we tell or the things that we consume. We're being shaped and formed by cultural values. And the thing is, this happens at what's called the precognitive level. So before you even think about it, uh, you are being shaped and formed in ways that you're unconsciously aware of. So I, I don't mean to sound like a paranoid fundamentalist as if there's a demon hiding under every bush. Uh, but the reality is we're always being shaped by culture. And the traditional word for being instructed in the Christian faith is called catechism. So catechesis is this form of instructing. It's not just a Roman Catholic thing. Um, catechesis means to instruct. So there might be formal catechism classes about Christian doctrine uh, we would traditionally call it Sunday school or this afternoon. This is a form of catechism. It's a form of instruction. But even our worship service is a form of catechism. So we're instructed in the faith through the sermon, but also through the songs we sing, the prayers that we pray, the routines of the Sunday morning are um, forming and shaping our hearts and what we value. And so this happens, the premise is, this happens at the secular or the cultural level as well. 
So not just in religious settings. So for example, saying the Pledge of Allegiance in a public school, that's, that's a, a form of catechism. So the, the poet Dana Joya has this great poem called Shopping in which he begins by saying, I go to the temple of my people, but not to pray. And the poem, as the poem goes on, he's, he's describing a mall, walking through a shopping mall, and all the ways that consumerism is functioning like a religion. What are the scents, the smells, the aromas, the messages that are showing certain visions of the good life? And so the movies, the books, the music, the Facebook scrolling, Instagram, TikTok, uh, we're constantly being inundated with ideas. And uh, that's especially challenging for youth uh, because their prefrontal cortex is still developing. So that's the thinking part of your brain, the decision-making part of your brain. It's not fully matured until you're about 25 years old. So that's a challenge for us as culture is always catechizing us and we have to think about it. So we have to become skilled at pausing to consider what are the cultural values that are being fed to me? What cultural assumptions have I unconsciously embraced? So, for example, uh, my wife and I, Elizabeth, we like to watch this show on Netflix called Animals. Uh, but threaded throughout this show and undergirding the entire series is this idea that humans are responsible for destroying the environment and the ecosystems of these wonderful animals. So my point's not to debate the validity of that claim, um, but I just use it as an example of the ways in which we're being formed by what we consume. So you're not just innocently watching a video of animals, you're getting a message with it. So how does this all fit in with faith, doubt, and deconstruction? So as we think about reasons people may deconstruct their faith or grow disillusioned with their faith, we see these common themes. And what's interesting is in my observation, uh, many of the reasons for deconstructing the faith or leaving the faith, as I said, are not primarily intellectual. Uh, so the old questions of, you know, God's creation in the universe, a young earth or an old earth, questions about evolution, uh, those are not the primary questions people are asking today. Uh, don't get me wrong, people are asking them, uh, but I don't think they're the questions of primary importance. I think Nancy Piercy is right uh, when she says people aren't asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, why are Christians such bigots? So, of course, uh, Piercy is concerned with the truth. She's not unconcerned with the truth, but I think she's right, and it's evident that there's been a shift in Christian apologetics. So maybe the old classical apologetics deals with evidence, things like uh, the historicity of the Bible or the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Uh, people are interested in those questions, as I said, but at the popular level, I think Piercy is right when she says people are asking these emotional questions. And part of that is because uh, in the modern period, our personal human experience 
has become central to our understanding of truth. So people say, I, you know, it's understandable. I don't want to sound like a bigot. I don't want to be intolerant. Uh, or So you can see how human experience is central uh, when pastors author books talking about how their views on Christian sexual ethics changed when their child came out as gay. So experience becomes the final judge of truth. So let's give, get into some examples of emotional reasons for people deconstructing the faith. So here's an example of something um, I've seen on social media. Uh, it says, church trauma can look like, and then as you scroll through, there's a host of different examples of what's called church trauma. Um, I'm just going to highlight two of them. I don't know if you can read those or not, but um, they say purity culture and fear-driven theology. Um, so I'll just kind of define what they're reacting against, and then some of the problems with their criticism. So purity culture is referring to this evangelical desire to pursue the biblical command of sexual purity. Um, You can think it was really popular in the 90s through the early 2000s. So think of things like a purity ring, abstinence pledges, the True Love Waits campaign, Um, And so opponents of this movement label it purity culture, and they mean it as a a negative label. And so they argue against the so-called purity culture, and they claim that traditional Christian sexual ethics is oppressive toward women, um, LGBT people in the church. They claim that the church teaches that if you have a sexual failure, you're damaged goods, Uh, They push back on abstinence education. They claim that the church teaches singleness as a less-than-human experience. Um, They say things like, you ought to desire to get married so you don't burn with lust. Uh, They claim that shame is an entirely negative experience, that if you feel any shame from the church at all over sexual behavior, or certain sexual desires, then it's the church's fault for making you feel shame. It's not yours. So, you know, how do we sift through this? How do we assess this? I would say, I think uh, the movement had good intentions. I think it was the right battle. Uh, Perhaps it was fought in the wrong way. Biblical purity is a good thing. Uh, But I think the movement, where the movement failed was its lack of a a positive vision of biblical purity and biblical sexuality. So the strategy was merely restrictive. And so if the message was, don't have sex, uh, the reason given was, well, you don't want to get an STD or you don't want to have a teen pregnancy. And so it was a, a, a vision of biblical purity pursued through restrictive means. And so there wasn't much of a positive vision of what biblical flourishing sexuality looks like. Now, in my experience growing up in the church here, that wasn't 
the message that I received. So I'm not going to deny the fact that there probably are uh, some churches who did this very badly. Uh, But given that, I think there are some criticisms and some flaws with the criticism of the so-called purity culture. Uh, One flaw, and I think this is a legitimate question to ask critics of purity culture, I would ask it this way. I would say, uh, do you think the message received was actually the message sent? Because practically speaking, so if I was having a personal conversation with somebody who's critical of purity culture, uh, I would ask for specifics when they speak in generalities. So the church has made me feel shame for my sexuality. Okay, who? (laughs) What did they say? Um, The conversation I had with the friend I mentioned earlier One of the things that he talked about was how when he went to church, he just felt guilty. And I tried to help him see, and this question can be uncomfortable, but I I said, well, did you need to feel guilty? Was the Holy Spirit convicting you of a specific action that you needed to repent of? Or did you feel guilty because you were living one way outside the church and another way at church? So was the message sent actually one of guilt and condemnation, or was that your perception? So another problem of this whole purity culture debate, I think, is a misapplication of the gospel. So because purity culture utilized restrictive means in pursuit of its goals, I think people misapplied the gospel. Their idea their sense of self-worth was entirely works-based. So I'm going to remain pure. I am determined not to fail. And when they do fail, well, there goes their sense of self-worth because their worth is totally determined by their actions. And so my thought is, uh, maybe the misapplication of the gospel was perhaps unintentionally communicated through the focus on restriction, but it could have also been a misapplication of the gospel on a part of the people themselves. So some of you may be familiar with uh, what's called the cycle of grace. That's really small. (laughs) Uh, Trace has taught on this before, but it, it says we don't start with achievement in order to find acceptance from God. When you start with achievement, what you do, that's salvation by works, and that's a recipe for burnout. The gospel is we begin with acceptance, with grace, and Christ's righteousness given to us, and then as we abide in Christ, our achievement, our works, are empowered by grace. It flows out of a heart that's been transformed by grace. So this is my opinion. I could be wrong on this, but Uh, I think some people who have deconstructed the faith because of this so-called toxic purity culture have failed to understand the gospel. And uh, that challenges me, okay? I don't don't mean that as a put-down on them. As somebody who preaches occasionally, who leads a small group, that challenges me. Am I accurately communicating the gospel? Uh, But on the flip side, am I accurately 
accurately applying the gospel uh, because it, it cuts both ways. The other example that I'll just talk about briefly up there is fear-driven theology. So they say, you know, doctrines like hell are used as a fear tactic. Um, salvation is lost and totally dependent on your strict obedience. Um, that last sentence really tells it all. It's like, okay, well, that's clearly a misunderstanding and a misapplication of the gospel. That's not what the gospel teaches. So some denominations may teach that you can lose your salvation. I don't believe you can, but salvation is not determined by your strict obedience. We're not justified by works. We're justified by grace through faith. So here's another example uh, from a book published by this guy named Paul Maxwell, and the book is called The Trauma of Doctrine. And to me, his story is a very sad one. Maxwell was a writer uh, at Desiring God. He went to Westminster Theological Seminary. He went on to get a PhD at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And after publishing this book, it was just published January of last year. And after publishing this book, uh, which was his dissertation, he announced that he was no longer a Christian. And here's the thesis of his book. And this is the argument he makes in three main points. The first is he says, all Christians can lose faith according to a traumatic experience. Reformed theology can make faith more psychologically difficult to retain. And then he says, uh, the loss of that faith does not guarantee the loss of soteric benefits. So that's salvation. So by Reformed theology, he's, he's talking about a theology that would emphasize uh, to a significant degree the sovereignty of God or concepts like total depravity or sin nature. Um, and just so you know too, I... To be honest, I haven't read his book in full. I read the introduction, which here's a secret. Really, that's all you need to do for a lot of books. Uh, Read the back, read all the front matter, read the introduction, and read the conclusion, and you pretty much have the gist of the book. Um, So just to be honest, I haven't read his book in full, but I'm accurately representing his argument. Um, Then he says the loss of faith, which is the formal word for that is called apostasy. It means falling away. So the loss of faith, he argues, doesn't actually mean the loss of salvation. So in a nutshell, he's saying the church and doctrine in particular can traumatize us and cause us to lose our faith, uh, but the loss of faith doesn't mean we've lost our salvation. And to me, and if you're thinking this, I'm right there with you, I think it's a really strange argument, uh, especially for somebody who's announced he's no longer a Christian. Because I, I read that and I say, well, what does it matter if you can lose your faith and still retain your salvation if you don't even believe that anymore? Why even hold on to those categories as meaningful categories? And so for me, uh, Reading about Maxwell's uh, story just makes me sad. 
because it's obvious his deconversion or his deconstruction is rooted in an emotional argument. He wrote a whole PhD dissertation trying to rationalize his deconversion. And I don't know all the details of his story and what's happened in his life, but I think it's obvious he's a wounded person. And the thesis implies that he's still longing for a relationship with God, even if he's trying to justify walking away from God. So that's, uh, those are just two representative examples of deconstruction or things related to deconstruction, um, things that cause people to doubt their faith. And uh, what I've tried to show is just, I think, often there's an emotional impulse motivating or guiding this whole idea of deconstruction. So for us, um, as we deal with it, as we interact with people who have questions, I think it's important to do a couple of things. How do we respond to this? And the first would be to encourage questions. I think Willard is really good in his book, Allure of Gentleness, in arguing that the church should be a safe place for questions. So he, the way he frames apologetics is that it's a ministry for the church. Oftentimes we think of apologetics as for people outside the church, as defenses, um, giving proofs of God's existence, things like that. But um, Willard would say it's really a, a ministry in service of bolstering people's faith within the church. So the church should be a safe place for questions. It's not bad to have questions. Uh, having robust intellectual answers strengthens our convictions, our faith, our discipleship. But the second thing goes hand in hand with that. And while we want to encourage questions, we also need to challenge people to scrutinize the scrutinizing questions. Challenge the questions. We need to challenge people to challenge the cultural assumptions that they're bringing with them. Um, the criticism has to cut both ways. And I, that's difficult work. Uh, it's not easy, uh, but that's the work we have to do. So don't just scrutinize the faith, but scrutinize the scrutinizing questions. And then the last thing that we have to do is we have to address the deeper underlying emotional concerns driving the questions. And that's life-on-life -life ministry. That's where this happens. Um, that's the kind of work that's personal, and that's the kind of work that takes trust. It just You have to build trust with people to go there. Uh, but I think that's often what is driving um, these bigger intellectual questions. And that's the work we have to do. So that's all I got for you. Um, what questions do you have for me? <laughs>